Hello and welcome to part 2 of Warhammer The Old World Lore Crash Course, a short mini-series in which we aim to bring you up to speed with the current setting of the Old World re-release, separate our griffins from our goblins, our beastmen from our bretonians, and our wood elves from our warriors of chaos, and generally ask, what's up with this Warhammer stuff? My name is Ben Quinn Barber and I know pretty much fuck all about Warhammer. With me is my co-host Christopher Crallen Allen. Howdy howdy. Who knows absolutely fuck all about Warhammer. Yeah, yeah. And my dear brother, Darren. Am I not a co-host as well? Who knows so much about Warhammer, it's a wonder he has time to do anything else. After years of trying to address this dichotomy between our levels of understanding, we gather once again to revel in our ignorance. Dichotomy! <laughs> Never been so proud to be ignorant. <laughs> You're really the, the cornerstone of that for us, Kral. Yeah. Is Dara co-host? I think he's kind of like... Nope. He's like, I'm a parasite. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know the, like, the circus shows? We're, Kral and I are the people that go like, and now the... And then you kind of trundle on the stage. And If you call me an elephant once again, I will slap you right in the face. <laughs> <laughs> they go, oh my God, look at that. <laughs> is it real? How is he moving? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that a beard with an idiot hanging off it? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just a middle-aged man who loves dad jokes. <laughs> Speaking of, I've got a good dad joke for you. Go on. Start as you mean to go Okay, on. here we go. <laughs> this made me laugh for a solid half an hour last night. What time does Sean Connery turn up to Wimbledon? I don't know. Tennis. the fact that it's good surely just makes that a joke doesn't it like it's the, yeah, that the moment joke? it becomes funny like, yeah. well, sorry, it, pardon me pardon me listeners for just a second go fuck yourselves <laughs> don't embarrass me in front of the listeners <laughs> sorry sorry okay right Crowell. anyone who's listened to our other shows will be familiar with your recaps of, of mm. previous episodes knows what a wild roller coaster of emotion that can be mate we laugh we cry <laughs> it's, ma we, it's we, mainly crying we weep <laughs> while scrubbing ourselves in the showers later on yeah <laughs> with the theme uh, to the crying game yeah <laughs> i thought maybe we would save new listeners that agonizing pain and have a quick quiz uh on the last episode to bring us all up to speed how'd you feel about that um intrigued hit me okay lay it all on right, me okay. bring it on come at me let's let's ease in gently said the vicar mm -hmm. question number one what is the name of the setting games workshop are re-releasing the old world strikes back <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah. the old world judgment day the old world <laughs> part three and so on yeah yeah, yeah and so on okay yeah great <laughs> What is the fated place? The world, the earth. Well, no, earth is our place, but it's it's the world in which the old world is set. Terra, awesome. if you like. Yeah. It's also how Ben refers to his special no-no area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fated place. <laughs> Where's the chaos portal near that, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not commenting. Number three, what does IC stand for? Imperial Kralen. <laughs> <laughs> Imperial Kralander. 
Gralander. Okay. And what and what is the IC split into uh as far as according we're to concerned? us, yeah, as far as we're concerned. Yeah. Uh there's after Sigmar, during Sigmar, and who cares what else comes after that? Because Sigmar Well, no, you can't have after and after. Before Sigmar. <laughs> before Sigmar, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You you get my gist. <laughs> During Sigmar was introduced by you last episode. I think that was that was brand new. And, and you just said, "How do we divide up the imperial calendar within our little posse?" Well, I mean, fair dues. Yeah. No, am I the littlest right. of this posse? I think I am. So, I think you, you are. Yes. I mean. yeah. yeah. But only in actual physicality. Um, yeah. What yeah. year <laughs> or years is the new setting based in? And by years, I mean a range. So you can either give us the specific year. Or the range. Uh, oh, you want some numbers? I know it's after the <laughs> end time. I mean, you can it? answer in interpretive dance if you would prefer. How can it be okay. after the end times? The clue is in the name. <laughs> the end times. It's the end. It's the build up to. The, it's the last few years, isn't it? So I have no bloody idea. Twelve thousand and something. Is that is that nearabouts? Oh, bang on! He got it. He absolutely nailed it. No, he yeah, got it I, wrong. I Completely think... wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really threw me there. I was like, fuck, have I not? <laughs> Ben's oh. so sweating. I saw a bead of sweat coming down his temple. <laughs> fuck. He's become self-aware. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, the rest of these questions are rubbish now. <laughs> uh, so he got one of the digits. No, he got two of the digits, right? In a kind of mastermindy way. It was one twin- zero. No, the second and the fourth. So it was twenty. Okay. Tw- sorry, twenty two hundred to twenty three. Are you sure? Twenty two hundred <laughs> and twenty three hundred. Okay, and that is not after the end times because nothing happens after the end times. No, exactly. Because Darren doesn't believe in the afterlife. So this happens just before the end times, does it? It happens right just before three hundred years before the end times. Yes. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, is it tw- yeah. roughly the twenty five hundreds that the end times? Uh, Mid twenty five hundreds is the end times. I've seen a date recently on I think for Warhammer Community where they're suggesting it's something like twenty two seventy six is the kind of present day. So they'll have a timeline, right? And then they'll have a present day. So twenty two seventy six seems to be the date that's being bandied around, but who knows? And sorry, when I was saying the mid 2500s, I meant the, the end times. Yeah, was in I agreed with you. Yes, I then moved on to another point. I didn't realize that we did. <laughs> I didn't get that memo. It's, it's still very You're welcome, early. listeners. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I've come up with this list of questions to make me sound like some sort of authoritative figure, but I think my performance has betrayed me. Um, <laughs> what is the old world equivalent in our own world, geographically speaking? Europe. Yes, Kral. Well done, mate. I, I thought that was a trick question because, again, I thought like most nope. of it is... Okay, shutting up. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is going very smoothly. <laughs> I think this was the thing that you and I got really confused on to begin with because we started talking about the old world and then we discovered that the old world was a place within the old world. And I was like, oh, fuck, right, okay. Yeah, but, yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, sure. it's not. It's, it's, yeah, like you say, it's Europe. I mean, Darren goes on about like the Far East, Cathay, Nippon, i.e., Far East in our world, or the Orient, talks about Lustria, i.e., the South Americas. Mm. Uh, what's not analogous about them compared to our old world, Darren? And Ben. Both of you barbers. It's the difference <laughs> between the old on, world game. Up. 
And I'm trying to, if you shut the fuck up. Uh, so it's the difference between the old world game and the old world setting. So the setting of the old world game is the old world in Warhammer World, which is also technically a miniatures museum in Nottingham. Yeah. No. Yes. No. yes. Fated place. Okay. Wow. Anyway, I got right. it right. We think. I, okay. <laughs> Okay, question number six. Name the five good races that we covered last episode, Crown. Elves, Humies, Dwarves, Halflings. When you say Humies, what do you mean? Yeah, humans. Yeah, that's that's not... That's... Yes. Yeah, you, you might have thrown them off with the question. Yeah. Name the five well, okay, factions. Sorry. Factions. Sorry, factions. Factions. Yeah. The, sorry, the I, five I have... good factions. Factions. Yes. Factions, yeah. Okay. So you, you had some of them. Go go again. So elves, dwarves are counted as yeah? You happy with those? So dwell dwells yeah. dwells? Dwells. Dwells, yeah. Dwells. Dwells and shelves. Dwells. This <laughs> is erotic fan fiction. What? Well, what what elves? Those elves. Wood elves, high elves. Excellent. Those elves, these elves. Yeah. <laughs> Those elves over there, these ones over here. You wanted five. Okay. I mean, I could. we could easily go well over five, so I'm just kind of struggling to understand what you're saying to me, Ben. <laughs> yeah, let me, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase the question. Name the five good factions that we covered last episode. Any five. There are more than no. five, but any five. No, no, no. The five that we covered last episode. <laughs> As in the five listeners, that are being re-released. I'm not doing this on purpose. This is, <laughs> this is us. This is how we are. All right. I mean, in, a de- in a desperate attempt to get on to question seven, high elves, wood elves, dwarves, Bretonia, the empire of man. Thank you, Darren. You get a point. Well done, mate. <laughs> Wee. Kral, final question. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. What is the average airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? African, African or European? Whoa! Or European. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, cool. Well, I think that brings us up to speed. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> now that Kral and I have demonstrated that we have no fucking idea what happened. Yep. And, of course, you know, our information retention capacity. Uh, can we In have potential. some more content? In potential. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. So what are we doing? This episode will split it roughly into two chunks of our tier two Patreon. Uh, we're going <laughs> nice plug, seamless, seamless. <laughs> so yes, as we've uh, said in the seven hundred and twelve questions that Ben asked at the start of this episode, which is now about three hours ago in record time, we looked at the kind of general state of the old world and the kind of factions therein and we dived somewhat into the five good factions the high elves of ulthuin the wood elves of athalorian the dwarves of the karak angkor the bretonians of bretonia and the humans of the empire of man also known as the imperials and those are broadly, in quotes, good races uh, within the setting. What we're going to do why are, in this episode... So why are they, in quotes, good? Because they're not bad. No, but why are they, in quotes, good? Like, uh, are, they, because are they not really that good? With the exception, maybe, of the High Elves, 
who we've discussed in another place have this kind of personality of everything they do is right, proper, and good for the safety and protection and continued existence of the planet. Spoilers? I don't know. (laughs) So all the other ones really are kind of self-sustaining, isolated kingdoms that, you know, are really neither good nor bad. They're not actively out to kill and conquer everyone else. There are, of course, exceptions to this. But with regards to the bad races, which we're about to cover, uh, these are kind of invasive cultures that want to take over and conquer. Pillaging. And or destroy. Yeah, exactly. And so the four we will look at today, these are the races that will be available at release of the Old World game. So we're going to look at the Tomb Kings of Khemri, the Greenskin races, the Orcs and Goblins. Of Khemri. Of Khemri. <laughs> we're going to look at the Beastmen of Khemri and the <laughs> Warriors of Chaos of Khemri. So, <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, it sounds busy there. It's very, it's very, you should it's see very multicultural. The, the complexity of the roundabouts they have. It's outrageous. <laughs> These are, in quotes, the bad races seen as the evil kind of races of Warhammer. So the Tomb Kings there are a force of undead. So undead are routinely seen as evil. Really understated rap group as well. They never got their um, recognition <laughs> they should have had. The Tomb Kings. <laughs> the Tomb Kings. <laughs> but doom. Yeah, moving on. That was shit. Uh, Just say it was the- shit. <laughs> <laughs> the Greensons then are in many IPs and many fantasy IPs. They're seen as a kind of how would you describe them? A lawnmower style culture where they'll just come in and blitz everything. They're they don't have a civilization and are out to conquer and fight. That's really what they are. They are my boys. Yeah. <laughs> Go greenskins. Are you more of an orcs fan or just a greenskins in general fan? I love all greenskins relatively equally, but the the orcs are up there. They're the OGs, aren't they? Big hulking. Yeah. Don't give a fuck. Kind of thing. Mm. Hobgoblins are pretty cool. After learning about hobgoblins, I do like those as well, but a bit too smart. A bit too smart for me, Ben. I like <laughs> the kind of the mindless point and destroy. Yeah. Hack and slash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dar, when you think of Kral as a green skin, do you think more of like a, an orc or a noblar? A snotling. A snotling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how noblar is Chris? thanks ben (laughs) the question is kral have you stopped denying that you're a nobbler (laughs) mate three years of this you get you get a thick green skin hide you really do nice nice (laughs) i'm a moving joke it certainly would explain the mushroomy smell moving on the (laughs) beast men of chaos are kind of ruiners of civilization they are kind of darwinian culture made real i suppose and then the warriors of chaos just they're evil vikings you know right well they're the kind of disney plus evil vikings in terms of their premium evil vikings many subscription levels of evil (laughs) okay (laughs) right and after we look at these four we'll have a look at the kind of general comings and goings of the old world itself in that century and we'll touch on a few things that will be of interest 
or not. I'm not in charge of you. You decide. Anyway, Tomb Kings of Khemri. These are Egyptian undead is really how to think of them in terms of a theme. If you've seen the last 20 minutes of the Brendan Fraser, the mummy movie, the first one. Oh, yeah. You'll know exactly what the Tomb Kings are because That's all cool. of the elements of the Tomb King, all the important elements of the, of the Tomb Kings are touched upon in the last 20 minutes of that movie. Mr. Chris. These uh, Tomb Kings, they are they come in an undead form, but you don't class them as undead, is that right? You would say the undead and the Tomb Kings are two different factions. I would say that the wet undead and the dry undead are two separate factions within Warhammer, within the old Got world. So Jets versus the greasy sharks. Got it. it exactly yeah. right, yeah. So yeah. The, uh, the Tomb Both Kings... Both great dancers, but that's where the similarities end. You certainly can't hug one of them. Um, yeah, okay. so, uh, <laughs> so when we talk about the wet and dry undead, what we're talking about are the vampire counts, which is a faction within Warhammer that's not available at release, which deals a lot with you know Dracula plus zombies plus larger feral Draculas. And they all kind of you know revolve around mud, blood, and guts. So, wow. you know, what we would refer to euphemistically as moist. The Tomb Kings <laughs> are kind of, well, if you'll forgive the phrase, bone dry, because they are literally just animated bones. Animated and sand. they are based in the ancient kingdom of Nehekara, which is analogous to our Egypt in terms of its culture. So they worship still many animal-headed gods who interact with them through prayers and manifestations so the may i ask a question mr chris wet and dry dead yeah it, uh, it, you actually define the difference between them by the magic they use is that right uh you can do yes because of the kind of shared origins of the tomb kings and the vampires which we'll mm. touch upon shortly the magic is sort of linked but at the same time, not, which is a very helpful phrase, I yeah. realize. <laughs> so the, the vampire counts reanimate the dead. The tomb kings, all of the tomb kings that have ever existed, uh, all of the troops and uh, various leaders that have ever existed in the Warhammer world are up and about right now in the present day setting. They have a finite number of skeletal troops but at the same time they're able to build up constructs war machines uh, giants monsters that kind of idea from stone and the bones of larger creatures so, so they can't they can't make more troops like standard kind of foot troops yeah they they can't Not really train yeah. yeah, what you'll find on the, the battlefield is you can, uh, it, through the various spells, which are kind of referred to as prayers, because that's kind of how they're invoked, you can raise new troops from under the sands, but the troops have to be there in the first place, and they have to be Kemrian dead. They have to, or sorry, mm. they have to be uh, Nehekaran dead. Excuse right. me. And that segues nicely into... Hey, Darren, why are all these dead things there? Anyway. Darren, why are all these dead things there? 
Thank you for asking. What a very intelligent and timely question. Thank you. So the origins of the Tomb Kings, and indeed, arguably, the vampire counts as well, all come from the machinations and ambition of Nagash, may his name last for eternity, who is the uh, arguably the greatest necromancer in the old world's history, or the the fated or Warhammer's history, shall we say? Mostly because he invented necromancy, and he inve- invented necromancy, you know, a couple of thousand years before the arrival of Sigmar, and decided that he wanted not only to become proficient and and live forever, but he wanted to live forever as the king of the dead which we have discussed previously in another place about how it was to do with his own fear of death and his own desire for control. He wanted to be able to control every aspect of the world so that nothing could threaten him. Um, Mr. Chris? It's quite ambitious. He, he, he was, he was, he, he, yes, Ben, he was quite ambitious. <laughs> struggling for the words there, so just, yes. <laughs> Nagash himself was never, he was always alive until he got slain several times before coming back many, many times, several times. <laughs> he was always alive, even though he looked skeletal and you could, at a glance, you'd be like, that's a walking, talking, fucking zombie skeleton. He was actually alive. He had a beating heart. He had blood flowing through whatever veins he had left in his body. Yes, uh, he did, but there is a point where he crossed over from being a living necromancer to being an undead lich, mm. and that was be- uh, the advent of his Christmas discovery. Twenty twenty one, Christmas twenty twenty four. When this record will finish, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the, fa- the fated <laughs> turkey Christmas. The fated turkey. So what was it? Just a click of a finger, and bam, he was he was a lich. No, it, he came to rule Nehekara and was then deposed because he kind of had usurped the throne from his brother. When he was deposed, he wandered off into the desert. And as he wandered through the desert, he came across some warp stone, not literally, and was able to, you know, over time became infused with the angry power of Dar. And at some stage, he passed from the mortal kind of being into an, in quotes, immortal being. And because he had created such a, how would you describe, a watertight backup system for his being, that any time he was killed, he would slowly be reconstructed within the Great Black Pyramid of Nagash, which is uh, on the outskirts of Kemri. That's a handy tool, isn't it? He mm. he is a bit of a handy tool, I have mm. to say. <laughs> it's through the story of Nagash that the tomb king as a tomb kings as a faction comes about through various battles and kind of jockeying for position and ambition and other words that end in ishin. He <laughs> finally says, "Do you know what? This is a dreadful place. I, I I can't stand living people." So he enacts this great ritual, which poisons everyone in Nehekara and they all die of kind of various diseases, as do all the animals, as does every living thing. And then he is able to resurrect them within the same spell. So he kills and resurrects as animated dead an entire kingdom. In fact, his own home kingdom. That seems like a waste of time. They were alive and functioning before you killed them. 
Like, why kill them to make them alive again? Huh? Right, Ben? Well, not not alive, <laughs> but animated. Oh. oh, right, like puppets on a okay. string. He wanted to control them. Exactly. There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only issue is, okay. is that when he reanimated everything in Nehekara, he reanimated everything in Nehekara, including all of the kings that came before him and their mortuary priests, who are the kind of uh, Nehekara and equivalent of necromancers. Take it that was an oversight. He didn't realize that he, he was like, oh, shit, I got more bones from oh. my butt than I realized. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, fuck, yeah, yeah I should have limited it, man. The boundaries <laughs> should have been like, okay, no one after 100 years ago. So, what, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So while he, while he wanted to be the only king in Nehekara, it ended up that every single king that had ever existed in Nehekara <laughs> Came back, to, <laughs> came back to life. It's like whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> so it's like when you put too much detergent in a washing machine and it just starts bubbling at the edge. Way, <laughs> way to like undo your life's work. You've been waiting for yeah. this moment. Like you've been training and and focusing all your efforts. You know, for this one moment, I'm going to rule and raise the dead, or raise and rule the dead in that order instead. And yeah, <laughs> just like wow, how yeah. Poor Nagash. I pity the fool. Oh, you know, if his de- his character defect, which he was acting on here, was control, he's not really made it much easier for himself. Yeah. Has it? Like, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna rule the world and control everything by bringing all of the kings back. So we'll have an ongoing debate about who's in charge. <laughs> he does strike me as a guy who, because of his desire for control, would usually on his CV put, "I've got a very good uh, eye for detail," uh, and then misspell the word detail. <laughs> he's that kind of personality do you know what I mean uh, yeah. so yes yeah, so with the resurrection of everyone in Nehekara now referred to as the land of the dead or the kingdom of the dead you have an entire culture like every being that has ever existed within that culture exists now all at once simultaneously so it's a very busy place everyone's a skeleton or a housing a how do you deal construct? with housing there's you don't need to lie down if you're a skeleton you just yeah. you just stand there <laughs> i mean you'll have like the tomb kings themselves the the leaders of the of the king they can lay down will will have palaces but that's really more a status thing than a you know a requirement than a, than a need could, to lie down uh, how do you have enough palaces for like uh, you got um, you got 100 kings you've got 10 palaces <laughs> But they, they, they must have fought, like when all of those kings and princes and stuff resurrected. Were they not like, right, I'm in charge? And the guy was like, no, no, no I'm in charge. Like, well, let's kill each other. They all have their own pyramids of various sizes and I'll be in my pyramid and decoration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the greatest of the tomb kings is a chap who first unified Nehekara under one leader. Uh, which was obviously himself, was Setra the Imperishable. And he was the... <laughs> who then uh, perished. He was, yeah, he did. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> he was the king who first instructed the creation of the mortuary cults, which are became the kind of necromantic engine of the Tomb Kings. And that was, he did not want to die, and so he got a load of kind of wizards and viziers to work out how to keep him alive. And they couldn't do it, so 
at a ripe old age, they they extended the span of his life by you know hundreds of years, but he still died. <laughs> was he was he just a bit shit at the end? Like was he? Was it like a normal human lifespan, but kind of spread out? So instead of being a bit shit for like the last twenty thirty, he was shit for hundreds. He was so enfeebled and like gummy, he could only eat hummus <laughs> <laughs> through a tube. Not even his, his ear trumpet could work anymore. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Setra, Uncle Setra. <laughs> is it one of those like big comedy ones that's got the circle in it? Like exactly. I never understood. Is that was that functional? Like, did it do something to help them listen? I suppose it allowed them to hold it. And I think there's also something to say about like the longer the jobby with the tapered edge and the focus of energy and blah blah blah. But mainly, it's comical. <laughs> <laughs> mainly for comic value I was like he's going somewhere with this but no it's just <laughs> nope. <Yeah. laughs> I am not I was yeah. once accused of having a comical horn let's move on <laughs> um, <so the> <laughs> uh, <laughs> jokes on you I'm a eunuch <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I do hold it up to my ear what uh, <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of the forces you'll find and the the units you can field, you have tomb kings, the, the kind of that would be your leader of the army. You also have the lich priests who are your kind of magic user. The bulk of your force is going to be skeleton warriors, either spearmen or archers or the kind of elite tomb guard, the kind of ones that are buried with the tomb kings. Nice. Against their will. <laughs> Against their will. No! <laughs> That's why they're so effective. They're really pissed off at being skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a very, it's also a very cavalry-heavy army, so you do have skeleton horsemen, but also you've got chariots. So you can wield a lot of kind of skeletal chariots. And the thing referred to as tomb knights, I kind of they're they're quite out there. They're massive articulated stone snakes with a warrior riding on the head. Wow. Wee. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Chris, you had your hand up there. Yeah, it was just a comment. I might be mistaken, but in ancient Egypt, wasn't it we were joking about the the king's guard, the royal guard being buried with their their king in ancient egypt or some ancient civilizations wasn't that a thing where like the servants the close servants of a leader or a pharaoh got not buried alive but just like entombed basically with them as part of with the riches and treasures ish it, some of it is quite apocryphal but i think it's happened on a couple of occasions but i don't know it was a standardized thing Right, but um, you know, as always, they tried it once and were like, mm, "This is a bad idea. Let's not do this again." <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Why? nah. <laughs> trying to trying to fall asleep in their house next to the pyramid, and it's just this yeah. like, "Get me out of here!" <laughs> 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 like, no, we shouldn't have put this person in a really shit built pyramid. <laughs> so we, or put the pyramid far away one of the two. that's why yeah. they made the pyramid so grand like they didn't want to hear yeah. the scratching and clawing of people trying to escape but i love <laughs> the idea of the the next tomb king so he's going like well we uh we entombed all the guards of my father in my father's tomb and now all my guards are kind of looking at me weird 
so yeah, so <laughs> the kind of highlights of the Tomb King forces are going to be their constructs. So these are animated statues, either comprised entirely of stone or of stone and bone. So we're looking at things like the Ubshabti, which do exist in our own world. They're kind of small clay figures that are put in with the, I was about to say, with the Tomb Kings or pharaohs, as grown-ups like to call them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like the Terracotta Warriors. Yeah, that... No, that's China, you doof. Well, yeah, but like the same sort of idea, like a, a it's the same figure. kind. Of, yeah, it's the same concept behind it. It's that these things will serve the king in the afterlife. Cool. The Ushabti and Warhammer are, you know, nine, ten foot tall animated statues carrying huge double-handed weapons or enormous bows that can that really fire will arrows. Fight oh yeah, for their king. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then you go on things like you've got giant animated scorpions you've got what we've seen recently the necrolith bone dragon which looks like a cross between a dragon and a crocodile um with wings jesus uh, undead just the scale oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh and it's undead oh, okay. and it's undead yeah. <laughs> there's one living creature in the uh <laughs> in the Tomb King's army, and it's really confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do they A flying it? crocodile doesn't, I can't picture that being very graceful because they're quite lumbering animals. I know they can yeah. pick yeah. up speed when they want to, but like they're quite chonky things, aren't they? Like bumblebees. You- <laughs> <laughs> like bumblebees. An undead really- bumblebee army. Yeah. yeah, it's just really bottom heavy. Like, just, just like it takes, it takes about half a mile for it to take off and it's just dragging its belly along the ground yeah. until it they use it for <laughs> plowing really more than anything else yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then you get into the more kind of esoteric and grand uh, grandiose constructs like what's referred to as colossi or hierotitans which are enormous bone giants that's effectively what they are, which wield huge kind of side-like swords and, again, a bow that can, you know, pierce through a, a, a castle wall. Mr. Chris? Are these undead giants, or are they just like an abomination of regular humanoid bones and skeletal things thrown together to make the size of a giant? It's a mixed bag, but it's mostly the, the, the latter. It's mostly they're constructed to look like huge giants. It's like Transformers when they combine together. Lots of little Transformers <laughs> yeah. together. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the Necrosphinxes, which are... It's a, what? It's a, it's a sphinx. Necrosphincters. Necrosphinx. Yeah, that's... That's very different. Necrosphincters. <laughs> Jesus. H. Tap dancing. Crowl, you heard that too, right? I totally heard that. Through those shit headphones, man. <laughs> There's <laughs> shit comms that we've got here. There's lots of spoonerisms. No, I think it's just he said it wrong. Yeah. <sighs> if you'd said necrosphinxes, we would have heard sphinxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying it, so I'll get past it. I'm moving on. We're drawing a veil. So, yeah, so if you can imagine the sphinx of our own world, sphinx, um, just basically... <laughs> I can't unhear that now. <laughs> yeah, basically just gets up, walks around, and starts killing things. That's that's what a necro a necro is. Yeah, it's the cat looking, cat looking uh, uh, tomb type thing. It's more like a, a giant granite centaur 
with the body of a lion and the torso of a, a man, and the man has two great huge golden scythes strapped nice. to his arms. Uh, and, wow. and he goes, as we say in uh, Scotland, pure dead Raji. Pure mm-hmm. dead mm-hmm. Raji. So with the release of the Old World, what we should see is all of the existing special characters from the previous versions of Warhammer back in the Tomb King's uh, force as available characters because they have existed thousands of years before the kind of present day in uh, in Warhammer. Can um, Tomb King undead units be reanimated infinitum? Or do they have a limited amount of times they can be? Uh, no. Well, like when they get killed, can they be brought back? Uh, yes. They yeah. can, they as can... many times with, with the same strength and abilities. Uh, yes, is the short cool. answer. I mean, probably not in the heat of battle in terms of lore-wise, story-wise. Probably not... Mm in the midst of uh, a, a massive kind of melee. Uh, but certainly the Lich Priests would be charged with reanimating and re the bones of any fallen soldier because the Tomb Kings would want to have the strongest force possible. Yes, I would have thought that so because, especially if they can only raise Kemri undead, right? Yeah. It can't just be a Bretonian undead no. in Kemri. No. It has to be a Kemri citizen, Kemri-born yeah, in general, yes, I th- suspect because they would view everyone else as unworthy. Mm. Is it? Uh, is it? Spe- it's not specifically Camry though. It's it's Is it anyone in the whole country? Yes. Yeah. And is that because of the original curse? I think it's to do with the kind of cultural attitudes towards outsiders that the Nehekarans um. have. The reason I was interested in, in knowing that is because you were saying that, well, as we said at the beginning, there's no conscription, there's no barracks, there's no training, yeah. military training. So where do, how and where do they replenish their numbers from? So the fact that they can reanimate their undead, their own undead as many times kind of fills that hole. Yeah. Giggity. Which makes me think <laughs> that if there's like a sandstorm or like a, just a regular kind of strong gust of wind, the entire country must whistle because yeah. you've got <laughs> wind going through the bones. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard recordings of uh, sand dunes at night? Like, do you yeah. think it's the yeah, creepiest yeah, yeah, noise? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It's awesome. Oh. I was about to attempt. Go on, try it, and that will segue us into the next bit. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> as we motorboat exactly now into the powerful green skin race. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who has any sort of experience watching anything with orcs in it, uh, whether it's animated or any sort of Lord of the Rings style thing, or indeed anyone who's played any form of role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons, will automatically have an image of what an orc looks like and also what a goblin looks like. In the world of Warhammer, the best way to describe greenskins, it's the collective noun for, or the collective name for, the orc and goblin races. In terms of their appearance, orcs look like football hooligan bodybuilders who are green, (laughs) if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that was that was the essential. Edition. That was the, the essential thing. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and they're very kind of leery. They they definitely would appear in, in movies like Snatch or Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. All right. It's yeah, yeah, very yeah. kind of East End leery lads. Uh, yeah. In what do you mean you don't have any fucking chips? That's it's that mean. kind of idea. That's the kind of attitude <laughs> right. of the orcs. Goblins, you would really describe as evil green children. That's what goblins are in uh, <laughs> Warhammer. They are slightly smarter than orcs and have a kind of better capacity for ranged weapons. As there is a third kind of uh, scale of goblinoid or green skin within Warhammer, and these are the snotlings. Yay! Snotling. These are to the goblins as goblins are to orcs. Snotlings are about somewhere between a foot and a half to two and a half feet tall and are malicious, spiteful little bastards. <laughs> Speaking like a laughing, chittering type yeah. thing. You can't I'm understand sorry, what they're saying, that... but they're all like laughing and like they're all yeah, yeah, yeah. each other. There's, and, there's yeah. lots of like they group together, all kind of hunched over in, in a scrum kind of chatting and every now and then one will, t- one will kind of stand up straight and look at you, go back and they'll all start giggling again. <laughs> Shitheads. Yeah. No, exactly. this hasn't brought anything up for me at all. <laughs> <laughs> when you related Kral to a snotling earlier, was it more a physical thing rather than a character thing? Uh, no, it can be both. It was a it was definitely <laughs> a character thing. Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> so the unique selling point of green skins in the Warhammer world is that they are in fact a type of mushroom. Cute. They are humanoid fungi, although they're not particularly fun to be around. Right. Uh, so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it physically hurts, doesn't it? it physically hurts. Yeah. Ugh. Of the three types, orcs are the largest. They uh, live to fight, and indeed, when they fight, if they fight a particularly tough opponent, it doesn't just kind of make them, you know, stronger as if in going to the gym. It physically bulks them up. They kind of, you know, they they can turn into Bane from the the Batman wow. universe. They get really kind of bulked and buffed up, and there really isn't a limit to that, other than dying. Uh, so one assumes if an orc fights long enough against larger and larger opponents, he will in fact turn into a mountain. Uh, an of, ogre. A, of an orc. Yeah, that kind of idea. Mr. Chris. Wow. What is the process or stuff that makes them physically bigger? Is it something that they absorb or is it just the victory and their biology just makes them go, you won? Junk, junk. It's yeah. like, a chem- a chem- like a chemical <laughs> reaction, isn't it? It is a psychosomatic reaction to effectively to confidence, but then it does manifest physically. And over time, they can become the war bosses. These are the orcs that are in charge of all these tribes. They can become easily the size of an ogre. And as I say, there's no real limit in the lore to how big they can get. But most of them die before getting to you know significantly uh, larger than an ogre because they are constantly fighting to grow bigger uh, and can have a more commanding presence. So moving on, goblins don't have a similar sort of uh, uh, physiological reaction to victory, but they are by far 
the uh, kind of best shots with bow and war machine in the greenskin army. And what you'll frequently find is that orc war machines are actually staffed or crewed by goblins under the kind of uh, cruel auspices of an orc with a whip. Whip. And then uh, snotlings tend to just swarm. They don't tend to get any bigger and are indeed used not only to as a troop type to annoy and disrupt enemies, but also as uh, snacks by both goblins and orcs. It's a very cannibalistic race. They have no cultural stigma against eating, you know, others. Each other. Because they're mushrooms. Mm. In terms of the different flavors of orcs, the different types of cultures within the greenskin race, you have... Okay, Ben, are you ready? Yep. You have the common orc. The cork. The savage orcs. The sork. And the black orcs. The blorks. There we go. Meet the blorks. Orcs, common orcs kind of fulfill that kind of savage medieval football hooligan style trope. Savage orcs are sort of their feral, lesser kind of civilization within greenskin culture. And what they frequently do is they, they're, they're very much kind of a stone axe, stone arrows, very kind of Neolithic style orc and they daub themselves in war paint which gives them some form of magical protection but they use a lot of stone weapons including a massive spear that needs to be wielded by two orcs and they just run at things it's sort of a a mini battering ram the black orcs are interesting in terms of their name comes from two things really the first is they have a deeper green color skin than normal orcs or common orcs, but they're also from a place called the Darklands. And so that gives them that kind of other aspect to their name. They they come from kind of black shrouded lands uh, in ash and clouds. And they are in fact not a natural form of orc. They were a eugenics program uh, carried out by a faction of dwarves who fell to evil. And they're referred to as Evil dwarves. No, chaos dwarves. They were bred to be kind of beasts of burden and manual labor, but the black orcs rebelled and kind of got back out into the world beyond the Darklands into the old world and the Badlands. And, you know, yeah, very massive oversight by the chaos dwarves. It, it, well, you can't really have too much sight when you're about four foot tall. Uh, So orcs are not the only ones that have this kind of split of culture. The goblins, you've got common goblins, forest goblins, and night goblins. Common goblins really are kind of nomadic, ineffectual Genghis Khan-style tribes that swarm around the world. Forest goblins, they dwell in forests and they worship a, a spider god. And so they're led by, routinely led by shamans, they're, they're kind of magic users, who allow themselves to be bitten by spiders. Uh, and ass they get spiders. Ass Darren. spiders. <laughs> if you want to know more about ass spiders, go and listen to everything we've ever done. It's in every single episode. I'm actually sick of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For everyone, Kral is an ass spider addict. He just cannot get enough of it. How, how many are you on today, Kral? I'm a recovering ass oh, you're, spider you're off them now, after are you? the... 
Yes, yep. I completed my 12-step program at the Iron Rock Rehabilitation. And, uh, <laughs> right, okay. Right. Now I'm off the Aspiders and on to something The cop tarantulas. What? Cop tarantulas, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a little bit disappointed that you didn't ask me to word merge the goblin types, Star. I'm just going to put that out there. All right, then common goblins. Uh, Coblin. Forest goblins. Foblins. Night goblins. Noblins, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well done, bad. Very much the forest goblins are in the same vein as the savage orcs. They're a very kind of primitive style faction. You have them kind of off their tits on spider venom, but also they ride spiders into battle, and indeed they're able to kind of capture and train huge giant spiders, uh, which they kind of force into battle either on their own in terms of just the giant spider itself or they have this massive kind of howdah that they plonk on top of the spider and so you have like goblins riding in the howdah and uh, firing arrows at people that are poisoned so they're very kind of giving in terms of giving people poison injuries <laughs> night goblins are perhaps the most interesting in terms of their culture they dwell under mountains so they're a very kind of palish green they wear kind of dark heavy black robes and they tend to fight at night because the sun burns their skin not kind of in a vampire way but it just makes them very uncomfortable and uh, in a scottish way in in a scottish way exactly right in a scottish way but these are perhaps the loopiest of goblins in terms of their psychology because they eat magic mushrooms like everyone else would eat apples or something <laughs> everyone else eats. Amazing. Psychedelic apples? Psychedelic apples. Sapples? <laughs> uh, well, how would you describe it? Their unique selling point is the humble squig. Now, a squig is a basically oh, yeah. a mushroom that's got a row of teeth and an arsehole. That's what a squig <laughs> is. And they are, uh, again... An aggressive mushroom. They are, I was, about, I was supposed to say, an aggressive arsehole. What? <laughs> <laughs> so these look like, uh, has anyone ever had, oh God, what are those things, the, the round things that you grab hold of and you bounce around the place? <laughs> Careful now. Um, yeah. Stress balls. Hoppers. No. Oh, space hoppers. Space, space hoppers. hoppers. So it's effectively a space hopper, an angry space hopper with teeth. And what they've <laughs> done is they've weaponized them. So these things can either be herded out in front of the night goblin forces and just effectively it looks like angry bubbles coming right at you. But there are <laughs> wow. also kind of elite, in quotes, night goblins who ride them into battle like space hoppers. And they're called squig hoppers. Mad. Uh, and they are uh, pretty crazy, and it's a good fun. And I think it's a force. Uh, I'll collect a small force of night goblins just for the kind of amusing squigginess. All of these, as I've said, there we've got uh, the forest goblins have uh, spider riders, the night goblins have squig hoppers, common goblins have wolf riders. So you see packs of kind of giant wolves being ridden by goblins over the kind of fields, roads, cities whatever else kind of geographical feature you want to bring up. In terms of monsters, we've already just touched on the giant spiders, but they routinely are followed by trolls of various kind. The two most common are the uh, river troll and the stone troll. So stone trolls live in mountains, 
in and around mountains and are almost always attached to night goblin forces. Because they consume so much stone, they're largely immune to magic and they wield huge two-handed clubs uh, made of stone and, you know, they're good shock troops. They're also dumb as a stump and so you would need to kind of herd them as much as you herd squigs. River trolls, well, they're really a Ron Seal-style troll. They, they live in rivers, and they're the kind of ones that would live under bridges, that kind of idea. Uh, their primary so live, mode of attack live is... Live in rivers or by rivers? By, they, in uh, and by rivers, yeah. Okay, um, right. Within. <laughs> they're in but not of the river. Yeah, in um, tandem with. Their mm. primary mode of attack is uh, acidic vomit. And so in the wow. tabletop game, you have this kind of flamethrower-style template weapon that can take out a good handful of troops from a, a number of units, depending on uh, where it chooses to chunder. And it's Jesus. you know it, it melts armor, and so they're a good shock troop for greenskins as well. The final kind of monster they have are giants, and really there's... They're like the Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum style giant. They march into battle and they have various attacks. Squish, including, crunch, uh, eat their enemies to death. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you, you can... There are things like stuff it in your trousers. So that's a kind of attack where they grab uh, a miniature from a unit and stuff it in their pocket, which is, must yeah. be horrifying. They're able yeah. to do like a, a large sweep attack with some sort of tree that they're holding. And of course, then they have the character assassination attack, which is simply grab a character and bite its head off, killing it instantly. So wow. greenskins tend to come upon their foes in large war bands uh, and tribes. And they really, you have a core kind of military unit, which is the tribe, and they will be uh, have associated smaller tribes, either of other orcs or of goblins, and indeed some war machines. Mr. Chris. The stuff it in your pocket maneuver, is there a follow-up to that, or is that it? You put enemies in your pocket, they're out of play, you're never going to see them again. That that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> in terms of war machines, there there are three kind of main war machines. We have the traditional catapult uh, and bolt thrower. So you've got stone throwers and uh kind of giant arrow catapult throwers. Or giant arrow throwers. Ballisters, ballistas. Yeah, that kind of idea. The one of note, which we should probably cover, is a thing called a doom diver, which is a goblin weapon, which is a huge catapult that fires a goblin wearing a Batman outfit with a large steel spike on his head <laughs> into the sky at the enemy. Uh, and they are Incredible. effectively kind of goblin lawn darts. And they are hilarious. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and they do, the, the miniatures for them are, in fact, a goblin in a wingsuit. Like, you know, you see these uh, parachutists where sometimes um, yeah. so they can just the zoom suit, through. I think, flying yeah. fox suit or something. Yeah, That kind of idea. But the end result is a dead goblin and a load of dead people or a load of dead enemies over a certain area. Depending on the type of hat the Doom Diver no doubtly wears. On the tabletop, is that uh, like a war machine? Is that yes. how it's treated? Yeah, yeah. Does it have ammunition? No, it does. It has loads of volunteer goblins. 
Uh, and wearing, so can you can you bastardize your goblin force to become ammunition for the doom diver? Oh, I see what you mean. No, it's assumed that the doom diver has enough goblins to be able to go right. every round during the game. Uh, gotcha. It's not like a thing that you would you would have to have a unit nearby and a reluctant <laughs> goblin is loaded up into a oh, giant just, elastic band like Wiley yeah. Coyote in Roadrunner cartoons. And there's just somebody standing, there's just an orc standing at the side with a load of like spandex yeah. Batman outfits, like spares. It's just yeah. like, no, no, you have to put this on. And a clipboard <laughs> where you kind of sign up to do it for charity, that kind of thing. No, <laughs> yeah, a waiver. A waiver. <laughs> a waiver, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's spelt like waver, as in like to wave. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the greenskins, that's really it. None of the named characters from the previous edition, they were either already dead by kind of present day in the old world or not yet born. There are some of note. So Azag the Slaughterer is a orc shaman who rides into battle on the back of a wyvern. Wyverns, very popular in orc and goblin armies. We've got Grimgore Ironhide, who is the best and biggest black orc to ever have existed. He appears around the kind of end times era, a little bit before, but he's around. And then we have, you know, in terms of goblins, we've got Grom the Paunch, who is an infamously fat goblin who is carried around in a big chariot and he's so fat because he ate some troll flesh so it's constantly regenerating so he's constantly got indigestion and is you know getting bigger and bigger and bigger because he has a you know an endless meal inside him already wow. and then we have uh, the night goblin boss scarsnick who is the most cunning That's his name the most cunning greenskin to have ever existed so cunning, in fact, he once kidnapped a human poet and forced him to write a play about his own life. The <laughs> Skarsnik's life, not the poet's life. That would just have been weird. <laughs> yeah. but, but as I say, none of those, these guys are either already dead or they are not yet born. And that, that touches on perhaps a thing we should say to close out Greenskins is Greenskins aren't born, they're grown. They form under huge patches of mushrooms and they kind of emerge like, what's his name from the second Lord of the Rings movie? Lurts. The Urukai. Yeah, the oh, yeah, Urukai yeah, yeah. kind of emerges from this sack. That's how orcs in Warhammer are born, in quotes. Which ones are, so by the, what is it, 2276, which ones are yeah. dead and which ones haven't been born yet? Gorbad Ironclaw is dead, and then Azag, Grimgor, Grom the Paunch, Skarsnik, and Wurzag, who's a savage orc shaman, have yet to be born. Wow. So right, okay. we, we will see new named characters for Greenskins, uh, which is quite cool. exciting, really, if you're into that kind of thing, which I am. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> so what we've just done there is covered what is arguably... A force of a, of death, a faction of death, and then the Greensons really are a faction of destruction. They're not inherently evil, but they're incredibly warlike. They're just, you know, as I said earlier, a, a lawnmower, a cultural lawnmower. We move on then to the two 
factions that really are evil. And what we'll do is we'll have a look at the Warriors of Chaos first. Now, I think last episode we touched on the Chaos Gods in... Without permission. Non-consensual, but it was Slanesh, and Slanesh is into that <laughs> consensual bad. non-consent, which is the craziest fucking concept I have ever come across in my entire life, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about it. So, um, <laughs> so, Warriors of Chaos are a human-centric faction of evil Vikings. Nice. That's really how you, you should think of them to start with. There are levels of Vikingness. We have the basic evil Viking, which are the Marauders, and they come in both infantry and cavalry formats. You then have what's referred to as the Chaos Warriors. Now, the Chaos Warriors, it's not just a, a cultural leap, it's also a spiritual and religious leap, where they go from worshipping kind of paganish gods to worshipping the actual chaos gods that those pagan gods represented. It, so there was like an entry level into right, uh, chaos worship. So once you worship chaos, what you're really worshipping is power and ambition. In the Game of Thrones on the TV, there was a character called Littlefinger who described chaos as a ladder. That's really what you're looking at in terms of uh, chaos in Warhammer. It's people who want to become so powerful, uh, and there are various definitions of power within the kind of idea of chaos, that they ascend from mortality to demonhood, where they're able to become a demon prince. That's the ultimate goal of all chaos warriors. Most unfortunately, don't become demon princes, or fortunately, if you're a, you know, a good guy, most end up as a thing called chaos spawn. Really, in terms of the the kind of goals, what you have to do is, if you're dedicated to a specific chaos god, you have to act in a way that gains that god's approval and spread that god's word. So we talked about the four chaos gods last time. We'll just touch on them again. We have Slanesh, who is the god of excess, uh, addiction, sexy and sexy times. Uh, we have Nurgle, who is the god of disease, uh, decay, and life, and rebirth. We have Korn, who is the god of war, and blood, and murder, and death. And um, Zinch. Zinch, who is the uh, changer of ways, the kind of god of magic, mutation, and hope. Each warrior dedicates themselves either to one of those gods specifically or to the general idea of chaos. Uh, and they worship something called Chaos Undivided. Chris? Do these Chaos Warriors, or anyone in the world at all, um, can they pick two or three different gods instead of one or all? Uh, like no, I think... I, I... Multipack. But not Nurgle and not Slanesh. I think in general, the kind of largest forces of chaos worship chaos undivided. It's by far mm. the safest, in quotes, way to worship chaos. Uh, you then, for those who kind of find themselves leaning towards one god or another, they have to dedicate their life to that god and to that god's purpose. You can't really pick two gods in general. 
do you pick or is it, you know, is it, is there a point where there's a selection process or do you naturally tend towards one because of the kind of person that you are? I, I think it's the latter. You naturally are drawn to that aspect of your own character, which is epitomized by the, the respective god of chaos. Right. So um, you might be like, so, I really like the idea of bloodshed, but I just find tentacles incredibly attractive. And yeah. So, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> you can you can still have tentacles and shed blood. Yeah. Um, we want a chaos warrior who physically is probably about six and a half to seven feet tall, and you know as wide, clad in plate armor, and carry huge kind of magical and sorcelled weapons and shields. These really are the elite troops of the the chaos forces. Once they decide to commit themselves to one god, they become chaos warriors of, insert god's name here, and they're granted gifts by that god, and the gifts are associated per god. So, for instance, with corn, you could receive a suit of chaos armor, which is even better kind of plate mail, plus a chaos weapon or immunity to magic or a roar for corn. For I'm just seeing a conveyor belt like in an old 90s game show going, That's right, yeah. Here's here's what's up for grabs. Okay, first of all, we've got your standard chaos armor. That's yours. That's yours. Moving on. Chaos weapon. Are you going to gamble? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, a speed boat. Yeah, and that's it. As soon as you pick, they just show you everything else that you could have had. Like, here's what you could have won. That was always my favorite part of uh, Bullseye is just watching the disappointment on the contestants. Here's what you could have won. (laughs) And so with this kind of gift from the god, you also receive like a mutation and these, any kind of body horror kind of idea, that's what the mutation could be. You could get tentacles, you could have a mouth on the side of your stomach, you could end up kind of with a thirst for blood, or you could have see-through skin. Having a little dick on your head. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You can act. There is actually a mutation called Crown of Flesh. And you roll an additional dice to see what grows on your head. The most common is um, eyes, but also fingers. You could have a crown of fingers (laughs) growing from your head. And one in a thousand chance. You want a wang crown. (laughs) Of having a wang on your forehead. (laughs) Some people call it lucky. I think I ordered the wine crown. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, as you progress through the kind of um, good graces or bad graces of your chaos god, you get more gifts and occasionally uh, more mutations. And ultimately, your goal is to become, to have served your god so well and be in such favor that you're ascended into becoming a demon, becoming a demon prince. Or as is most common, you gain one too many mutations and you suddenly get, I think the number is D6 plus three in the game. You suddenly get a huge number of mutations all at once and you turn into this mewling kind of weird chaos creature that is herded into battle, not unlike the squigs of the Night Goblin uh, forces. So that's the most common kind of end for chaos uh warriors now as you move up that ladder you Sorry, can i just ask on that point so if you're yeah. playing on the table and you have the chaos what is that a, a function that happens on the tabletop 
There are spells and magic items that can cause an enemy to turn into a chaos spawn. Yes. Right. Okay. And do, and do what happens in that instance? Do you swap that? Do you have to like if you're playing chaos? Do you have to bring a bunch of spawn miniatures to swap them out with? If yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it used to be That's you had cool. to create a spawn which could take like ten minutes to create the stats. But over the various editions of the games, they've created a kind of fixed stat for a chaos spawn, and that's that's what you use. So you would yeah. replace the miniature with that chaos spawn. That's yeah. cool. But I was going to say, as warriors ascend that kind of ladder of chaos, they become what's referred to as chaos champions. And these are the captains and generals of chaos forces. Some of them become more magically inclined. They become chaos sorcerers. And so you end up with this warband-style mass of evil Vikings, evil super-armored Vikings, led by Chaos Champions and Chaos Sorcerers. You also have, obviously, the cavalry versions of both of those, and indeed you have uh, Chaos Chariots as well. So you have a, you know, you have a fairly They've decent... They've only got one wheel. So They've only got chaotic. one. <laughs> Technically, no, the wheels are square. <laughs> no, there is a, there is a chariot that has one wheel, and that's the dark elf chariots, which are not in the game at release. They have right. a large wheel in the center of the chariot, uh, which cool. is pulled by various beasts. Well. Um, are they kind of like the 80s uh, cars with three wheels you see them now and again I used to see them now and again they never really caught on properly though, yeah. too <laughs> yeah, easy to tip bit. over a little, yeah. little bit little bit. Um, so th those are the kind of mortal human style followers of chaos uh, you then have the, the monstrous you have chaos ogres chaos trolls really any kind of animal you can think of put the word chaos in front of it and they can be in the chaos Bam. army Bam! Chaos Marmot, I think, was the, one of the very first ones we came up with. <laughs> a flaming Chaos Marmot. Mm. Jeez. How do the beasts become chaotic or part of the Chaos Umbrella? Because it sounds like to be a Chaos Warrior, you need to dedicate, you need some sort of commitment to the cause. So how does, how does a Marmot, which is relatively, you know what I mean, instinctual and doesn't really have any MO, you know what I mean? Like, well... It <laughs> they just it's stumble great, into some sort of ritual and they're like, whoa, 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 yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, no witnesses, no witnesses, zap, yeah. <laughs> it's mostly through magical experimentation by various sorcerers or, as we'll discuss when we have a look at Beastmen, there, there are areas of the world that can mutate anything into okay. a kind of chaosified yeah. version of itself. Yeah. In terms of the, as I say, the monstrous, we have Chaos Ogres, Chaos Trolls, Chaos Giants. Those are all kind of the standard Ogre Troll Giant kind of trope, but a little bit more tentacly or finger crowny or cock foreheady or whatever it is we're deciding <laughs> defines Chaos Wang crony. Uh, uh, at the minute. We then have a kind of separate chaos race referred to as dragon ogres. And they're referred to dragon ogres because they're crosses between dragons and ogres. It looks like a, a centaur, a dragon centaur. So it's got the, the kind of bottom half of a dragon, top half of an ogre. And these are a kind of ancient race, an ancient evil race that commands lightning. And the miniatures for them are pretty great. But the, the generals of the kind of dragon ogre armies, the leaders of their culture, are referred to as shagoths. 
And I just thought I'd mention that because you two are fairly... Your, your eyebrows have shot up there, which is really great. Chagot. Disc- discuss. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You discuss. You discuss. What the fuck? Shagoffs. S H A G G O T H S. Shagoffs. Ah, okay. So like goths, but but shaggy. It's like James Bond when you see I can't remember which one it was, and the lady introduces herself as Pussy Galore. Oh no, that was Austin Powers, wasn't it? Yeah, okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) That was the parody, and that was the point. Yeah, okay, okay. (laughs) Shutting up. (laughs) And so these are these are like towering beasts. They're you know walking along. It's you know ten to twelve feet to their shoulders. They wield either huge double-handed weapons or usually have a pair of. Uh, axes or clubs or swords but the the shagoths are you know easily 20 to 25 feet to their shoulders and they are armed with huge double-handed axes and all of these creatures can command lightning bolts to strike from the skies and indeed wow the shagoths are able to actually cause lightning to strike units of dragon ogres and that kind of powers them up like Iron Man when Thor zapped him with lightning. They kind of um, <laughs> the dragon o- the dragon ogre is now at 250%. Let them loose. Yeah. It's that it's that kind cool. of idea. <laughs> Christ. Uh, and just to close out the Warriors of Chaos, in terms of war machines, they don't really have that much. They used to have a lot in earlier editions, and those were usually staffed by Chaos Dwarves. So you could have mortars, a Chaos Bazooka, swivel cannons, this kind of idea, and lots of kind of really intricate, weird war machines. This has been reduced down to one called a Hell Cannon, which is a cannon made completely of souls that fires tortured souls at the enemy, and that is crewed by Chaos Dwarves. Um, so that's... <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty it's crude, that, right? Yeah, sounds difficult to manage. Yeah, yeah. How do you well, the miniature, the miniature actually has uh, it, the thing is chained to the ground. It's like you know, it's, it's, it's it has chains wrapped around it, and they're nailed into the ground to stop it from moving around the place. But, it right. is a living weapon that's actively trying to kill everything, and that includes rolling over things. So they have to chain it up mm. to uh, cause it just to fire stuff. Is it tangible? Like, as you said, it's made of souls. Is it? What are the chains fastened to? Because I, in my head, to the it's cannon, just a bunch yeah, of, it's a bunch of ghosts. yeah, ethereal. <laughs> it's a bunch of ghosts. It's a bunch of screaming skulls that are kind of bound into this kind of metal cannon. Yeah. All right. Wow. Or are you joking? I don't. I can't tell. No, that's I'm being serious. Oh, um, that's what it actually is. Okay, right. That makes. Sense. And finally, then, because they it. There is a fairly strong religious aspect to it, but not as we would understand it. They do have war shrines, which are usually carried on the back of some chaos ogres or or chaos trolls. And that's where shaman or priests would, you know, extol the virtues of violence in the name of their god. That's that's how they emit buffs. Yeah, is that is, is that is that does that give an inspiration? Yes, that, there's a kind of a there's an aura benefit to it, and that depends then on the god. Uh, so for corn, right. you become better at fighting. For Sanesh, you become less likely to run away because you're so jaded. You've seen it all anyway. For okay. 
Nurgle, it might give you a kind of uh, a, a difficult to hit modifier because you'd just be surrounded by flies all the time because Nur- all of Nurgle's troops are kind of suppurating and their guts are hanging out and they're still able to march around the place and fight because, you know, it's, it's make-believe. And then with Zinch, uh, you get some sort of magical resistance, a magical save, that kind of video. So there is a benefit to having those war shrines there. Uh, and so... Well, the warriors of chaos do they not really have there's not a big focus on their war machines because the individual warriors of chaos are nuggets are they like are they really tough yeah. as individual miniatures okay no, originally they were three to four times more powerful than a basic human and that's just the right. chaos warriors uh, right. they've toned that down somewhat but they're still you know a, a unit of 20 chaos warriors versus a unit of 20 imperial kind of state troops the state troops wouldn't last even one round they'd just be absolutely right. minced and they'd rout so right. yeah it's 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 definitely a a faction of champions at various states in their journey going right. from kind of basic units of foot troops each one of those is still uh, you know has ideas to become a champion and wants to be to kind of gain glory in the eyes of their gods. Journaling every evening. One day closer to being that demon prince. I, I can do this. <laughs> Believe in myself. <laughs> I just need to pray and meditate and... Fuck everything in sight. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of champions, we're not probably going to see any of the existing or, or the the champions that existed in the previous editions in the new version of the game, simply because it's too early where most of them haven't been born yet. We will probably see a being called Galrock, who was the first Chaos Dragon, who was a dragon who had its head and neck split in two and was possessed by a demon or one of the demons of Zinch. Cool. Um, kind of ca- god of chaos magic and that's it's a, you used to be able to get a miniature for it and it was staggering it like towered over everything on the tabletop galrog is that quite a common zinch character idol that you see in a lot of literature and things like that there's like this like hydra multi-headed serpent type beast or is that just do you get lots of those in zinches it's more it's a thing in chaos armies if you get a Chaos Dragon, you do have the option to have it like a two-headed Chaos Dragon. One or two heads, uh, sir. One, I'll go for two. One, two yeah. Go <laughs> on, I've been paid. One. Two heads. One. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not driving. Bring that other. I'm not driving. <laughs> but there is a Dragon Ogre character who I think might be in, or who, who might be eligible to be in the game, Colic Sun Eater. And they are like staggeringly big. They're like they're the size of a dragon. And it's a, a dragon ogre. But I'd be interested to see, I mean, I'd love to see an army exclusively dragon ogres fielded and how effective it would be. I think it would be, I think it would be destroyed fairly quickly, but it would be good fun. Because <laughs> you'd have you'd really have one tactic. Yeah. Just ground yourself, right? Just ground yourself, you'd be immune to the fucking lightning. Simple. Yeah. Just take your shoes off. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the the enemies, yeah. They would just walk yeah, around yeah, barefoot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorted. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's warriors of chaos so the those were the kind of mortal human followers of chaos that are you know that have with them 
various other kind of monstrous elements. For the final faction, which is the Beastmen, the Bray Herds, as they're also known, these really are the savage, angry goatmen of Warhammer, because that's what they are. They are pitched as, if you had an idea of what the faction kind of is, it's they are the ruiners of civilization. They're the kind of kind of dark, fear-causing thing in the middle of a forest. You know, nature turned ravenous and evil. That's what beast men are. Wow. As a faction. We talked last episode about the or sorry, we talked in the first episode about the collapse of the polar gates. And that's really when the Beastmen were born slash created as kind of waves of chaotic magic washed over the Warhammer world. Everything that was close to the North or South Pole, and we're using close in kind of, you know, a couple of thousand miles, uh, was instantly turned into either Chaos Spawn or some form of amalgamation of man and beast. And so the beastmen really are the bestial natures of kind of mankind given full sway and control over, you know, their own bodies. It would be good to envisage them as, you know, what we would be if there were no rules whatsoever and we could just do whatever we wanted. Like on our podcast. Yeah. Like we... (laughs) You know, we have nothing controlling us, no no boundaries around us, and we don't care about uh, judgments, that kind of idea. It's that kind of nature that is encapsulated within the Beastmen. In terms of appearance, think of a kind of six-foot chap with goat legs, a goat head, a kind of shaggy hair at where all those things join on to a well-muscled and toned human body. So they are stronger than kind of the average human in general and slightly faster uh, in terms of their combat ability. They come in largely three or four flavors, depending on how you define beastmen. So we have the Ungors, which are, uh, how would you describe them? Those are the kind of weedy weedy beastmen, if you can imagine such a thing. So they have those kinds of goat the llamas. legs. Yes, you've got the main very... goat men <laughs> things. And then you've got the alpaca style. The alpaca. Just chewing and spitting. Yeah. The Ungors have goat legs, they have the kind of muscled torso, but they instead of like a proper animal head, like a goat or a bull head, they have a kind of really uh, contorted ugly human head on their right. uh, shoulders those really are the how would you describe them the goblins of the the beast men mm. faction in terms of they are the lowest of the low compared to the gores which are the most common and standard kind of idea of what a beast man looks like um, does one evolve into the other does one grow into the other or is it kind of evolutionarily speaking one has got to the the end of the line for them. They, they I think in general, there's there are separate creatures in terms Entities, of their thing. Right. So ungors, they can only ever be ungors. 
there may be magical rituals or interventions from chaos gods if the you know if that ungor is going to try and be a chaos champion to progress to a gore and then to a best gore which are their kind of elite troops but in general ungors gores and best gores best gores just look like gores but slightly buffer right those are three separate entities mr chris these are results these RAs result of chaos energy washing over the immediate area where the polar gates collapsed and turning yeah. what sounds like mainly people into beasts rather than beasts into people, which is my query. You know, is is it mainly humans, humanoids that have been turned into these beasts which tend to be represented by like the goats and that kind of fauna? Or is it the other way around? Can you get like a, a goat that just becomes more human like and they are also beastmen? It's a great question. I think the answer to all of those things is yes. I think all of those are on the table in terms of what creates beastmen. The advent of the collapse of the polar gates, or with the advent of the collapse of polar gates, the kind of beastmen race was created, but they are a breeding race. They're able to continue their own lines, as it were, mm. and continue uh, evolving. That's not the only way that beastmen come about. Uh, one of the other ways is the birth of a mutant child within a, a human community. And invariably what happens is that the parents will abandon that child in the woods as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the witch hunters or you know local priesthood will come down on them like a ton of bricks. So mm. invariably what you find is that Ungors are in fact those children. That's mm. the way to think of that. That's not, and they've been taken in yeah. by a tribe of beastmen, yeah. There used to be a thing in the third edition of uh, Warhammer Fantasy in the realms of Chaos Sourcebooks where you had a, a, a child given in such a way if they were in fact if they became a gore, if they became a proper full beast man, they were referred to as a gave, a G-A-V-E. And that would be tagged on the end of their kind of honorific to show oh, that they were a right. gift to the beast men by the gods of chaos through uh, this kind of human mutation. Uh, mm. And they would be honored and invariably became either the kind of warlords or the shaman of the beast men hordes. Uh, and that is a good segue because... Warlords and shaman lead beastmen hordes. I basically just repeated myself there, sorry. <laughs> you then have, in terms of cavalry, you would have things called centigors, which are beastmen centaurs. That's how to think of them. And their unique kind of selling point in terms of the battle array for beastmen is that they're always drunk. There you go. Amazing. Simple. Sometimes it doesn't need to be complicated. <laughs> it doesn't need to be all fantasy. Just uh, drunk beastmen centaurs. I was just thinking, just a touch on that, um, uh, humans giving kids, kind of, I guess, to kind of save themselves. But like, I think at any point, the ungore? Ungore or umgore? Is it with a U or an N? Ungore. U-N-G-O-R-S. Right. Do you think any of the, 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 the ungore kind of says to the, it's like beastman parents? Um. Grum, I want to meet my real parents. <laughs> I want to go back. <laughs> yeah, it happens a staggering amount, up to and including the Winds of Magic DLC in Vermintide 2. Shut up. What? They yeah. actually come back and they want to meet their real parents? Uh, well, they want to come back and kill their real parents. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's very yeah. <laughs> So that, that's... They want to kill everything that's not Beastmen, though, right? So that, That's kind of meeting, I think. Yeah, well, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Is that to sever their connection to... Yes, and kind of get revenge on a... Be- uh, revenge on... F- for being born without their permission. That kind of lunacy. Um, <laughs> so, angsty teenage behavior. Standard angsty teenage Emo. behavior. Emo. I yeah. didn't ask to be born! <laughs> emo goats that's the way to think of beastmen yeah emo goats yeah okay yeah <laughs> in terms of war machines they really only ever have one and that's chariots so you can have uh, gore beastmen warriors being pulled by tusk gore and those are effectively spiky boars that's really all they are giant spiky Spine. boars nice porcupine boars in terms of monsters, they have the usual access to trolls and ogres, and I think at least a couple of occasions dragon ogres, but their kind of big go-to are minotaurs, and those are the kind of classic ancient Greek idea of a, a massive, you know, a 10-foot-tall bull-headed human uh, running at you with axes, you know. To that degree, is a beast man just not a mini minotaur? They do have what's referred to as bovi gores, B-O-V-I gores, uh, and those Bovee. are beast men, yeah, with uh, bull heads instead of goat heads. Ah, okay, right, right. There used cool. to be a, a various array of delineations of gore based on the type of animal. The worst one to have to roll up were the gerbil gores. And because it's still tiny a massive head. human massive torso with a tiny man. head, yeah. tiny little rodent head. <laughs> <laughs> Harder to hit, though, right? Oh yeah, harder to hit. Yeah, get a headshot on that motherfucker. <laughs> but more than any other faction, the beastmen uh, or the Brayherds are usually followed by various arrays of monsters like chimeras hydras cockatrixes manticores that kind of idea a menagerie a menagerie (laughs) (laughs) and so with that in terms of characters that we're likely to see i can really only think of one which is morger who is the master of skulls and he is the personification of mutation within the Warhammer world. He is a beast man that's constantly mutating. So he's he's even when he's sitting, his flesh is kind of roiling around and boiling. And it looks like there's lots of like wow. hands and faces and claws appearing under his skin. Penises. Uh, Jesus H. Tap dancing what's name Ben. Are you all right? Do you have something to say? <laughs> just, we were talking about penises, to make that. You know, a wang crown is just like Watching him must be. I bet, I bet all these colleagues are like taking bets. Like, right, what's going to come out of him today? Right, I've got a tenner on a penis. You would never recognise okay. him. If You'd you never recognise him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. like, what does he look like? Uh, yes. Uh, all right. <laughs> if you, okay. If you have a wang crown, is it funnier when it's floppy or erect? Depends. Which is funnier? Depends what your mood is. Because if it's floppy and you turn your head sharply, you've got this weird kind of hula hooping skirt of cocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would right, be have you if, got that if, out of your system if, now? Can we move if, on? If the <laughs> Not state quite. of it was like indicative of like his mood. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold in here. Are you cold? I'm cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
But what's weird is that if there's like, say if there's like 12 or 24 of them in a circle around his head, what if just one goes up? What does that indicate? <laughs> Which one though, Darren? Is he hungry? Has he sent yeah. something off to the right? You know. It's like a sundial. <laughs> Only one goes sundial. off at a certain time of day. <laughs> Just follows the sun as it rotates. Like. What time is it? Gary, take off your helmet. What time is it? <laughs> God, how would you wear a helmet? Anyway, yeah, it's a special helmet. <laughs> so yeah, so in terms of say, characters, you'll really only probably see Morgar, but there may they may bring in other of the more exciting characters like Moonclaw, who is the son of the Green Moon Morsleib. What? The moon had a son. The moon had a son called Moonclaw. Yeah. Wow. Drink that. What in. does Moonclaw look like? Just like a rock of warpstone. Uh, he he looks like like a douche. How would you describe him? Uh, have you ever seen With Nail and I? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. He looks guy. like he looks like Richard E. Harris and with nail and eye. <laughs> really, but slightly like a beast man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, they do have other characters available, such as like Malagor, the Dark Omen, who is a a beast man shaman with wings. So cool. it very much looks like a beast man Brian Blessed from Flash Gordon, but with uh, wings. But wait, I have wings. wings. Yeah. But they they also had a kind of charioteer warlord called Gorthor, who I think again it's slightly too early for him to appear in the lore. But that's it for the kind of factions, the kind of four evilish factions. We have the angry undead of Nehekara. The ongoing, really, what was it? The ongoing angry mosh pit of Greenskins, the Warriors of Chaos, the anger is, you know, implied, and the Beastmen, who are also angry. (laughs) (laughs) Common theme. (laughs) But in terms of where these factions are found, Nehekara is quite far south of the old world. In fact, it's two kingdoms south of the old world. You have to go through the border princes and the badlands to get to the land of the dead. Greenskins are found all over the old world. The old world is quite heavily forested. They're all over the empire. They're all over Britonia. They're, they tend to focus around a mountain range called the Pale Sisters, uh, kind of northern Bretonia, and indeed we'll cover that uh, the kind of cleansing of that shortly. The beastmen are found almost kind of within the old world. The beastmen are found pretty much where the greenskins would be, in terms of within the forests and mountain ranges. They tend to like kind of dark areas uh, and kind of march out and destroy any kind of civilized settlement near them, including Greenskins. They view the Greenskins as a civilized race because they build homes. Uh, they Heathens. Build kind of static locations and settlements, yeah. The Warriors of Chaos, in general, sweep down from the north. So they are in Norska, which is evil Scandinavia, and then up into the realms of Chaos itself. They appear in two forms, Uh, either naval-based armies or marching armies which come down through Kislev and into the Empire. And the naval armies will go along the kind of coast of the Empire, coast of Britonia, 
and so all of these factions can quite readily get access to each other to fight battles. But that's the evil factions. Thoughts? Mm. Pretty evil. Yeah, mum. Evil. Uh, you've wet my appetite to deep dive into like Tomb Kings and Beastmen. I'm I'm keen to hear about yeah, those mom. two factions. Yeah, I'm detail. pretty keen on Beastmen as well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I thought we'd do now, just to close out this episode, is just have a look at some of the 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 kind of broader events in the world at large within the century that the the old world is set. The game, the old world is set. The most important thing I think to to focus on is what's not there in terms of recent events. So there are a lot of factions that are not covered at launch. Uh, and one of the biggest ones, I think, are the vampire counts, uh, as we briefly discussed when we uh, looked at Tomb Kings, the wet dead. They're actually centered on a part of the empire of man in the kind of south uh, eastern corner in a place called Sylvania. The reason that they're not included at this stage, I think, and it is quite good lore-wise, is the Empire just fought a 150-year-long war against the the Vampire Counts, which only ended, what, 50 years ago for the century? So it, it ended in the mid-2100s. And so the Vampire Counts are very much kind of rebuilding their forces and armies. And the Empire is recovering still from that devastating series of wars. And so in terms of the kind of pressing events for this century, we have to start with the the Errantry War of Bretonia. So the King of Bretonia, King Luon Orkslayer, guess what he does, <laughs> kind of declared a crusade in effect against greenskins within the the borders of Bretonia. And so they cleaned out a lot of the orc and goblin tribes around the northern mountain ranges, which are the Pale Sisters, but also along the kind of foothills of those mountains as it kind of merged down into Athel Lauren, the kingdom of the Wood Elves. A lot of land was reclaimed, and so a lot of new uh, knights uh, were able to be fully knighted and gain land and you know build themselves small castles or fortresses strongholds that kind of idea and so you see a blooming of new knights new sirs within bretonia at the time and um yeah <laughs> new generation uh, so yeah so this gave birth this, yes this gave birth to a more kind of militant uh, attitude within Bretonia, which extended throughout the rest of this century. An interesting and familiar event happened a few years after the Errantry War, is that a force of chaos demons pours out of a rift that's been opened up into the realm of chaos in a castle, which I'll be interested to see if you guys can remember it, in Castle Drakenfels. Oh, yeah. Constant Drakenfeld. Yeah, the ever-present Drakenfelds. If you go and listen to our Vampire Counts episodes, we discuss Drakenfelds in, in, in some detail. But yes, yeah, so a force of uh, chaotic demons destroys everything around Castle Drakenfelds, and then mysteriously the force leaves you know, with no notice and no intervention. It just 
fades away. Uh, so obviously the Chaos Portal was closed through some fashion. As the kind of decade trumbles on, the first decade of the 2200s, uh, there's a massive battle between uh, dwarves and orcs at a place called Black Falls, where both the dwarven high king and a, the goblin warlord are killed, but only the goblin forces flee the field. So the dwarves are under the uh, un- now dead uh, King Alric take over that area of the mountain range. While this is all happening, there are still warpstone showers raining down on the planet, usually from Morsley, but sometimes from the northern realm of chaos. So warpstone, I think, as we've said in the previous episode, is a physical manifestation of the wind of Dar, of the the black kind of uh, magic style uh, wind. So you start to see a lot of chaos cults uh, grow uh, as they kind of steal uh, warpstone and use it to power their weapons and magical capacities. We mentioned Athel Lauren there. So as we move into the second decade of the century, Athel Lauren, the kingdom of the Wood Elves, starts sending out scouts to see what the state of the world is because they've had their borders shut for quite a while. And the most famous of this is a, an archer called, or a scout called Scarlock. Um, and in fact, Scarlock's Wood Elf Archers was the first box set I ever bought at uh, Warhammer way back when in 87, 88. And, and I still have them somewhere. Old, um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. But uh, they. You are ancient. Go fuck yourself. So he. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, that's it. No, I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So we start to see the wood elves kind of come out of their isolationist period and explore the world. And Scarlock signs on as kind of mercenaries for many human forces and, and dwarf forces as they progress through their kind of mission. Before you go on, as a complete slut for the wet dead yeah how do you feel about i know you said that it kind of works lore wise but how do you feel about the wet dead not being included in the launch um i'm a bit bummed but i can understand it i can understand the reason and and there's a you know the reason from a storytelling perspective but also from a kind of financial economic aspect they still have all the plastic molds or the molds for the plastic miniatures Hmm. held away at Nottingham to come fully formed with all the releases, all the the units available at launch is a staggering amount of money uh, in terms of investment, but also the scheduling for that would be a fucking nightmare. So what I suspect they're doing is releasing an army every two, three months. Or, you know, or, you know, every six months, maybe just to see how the game grows. And if it looks like the game's a gore, which I think it will be, then they'll start adding in other factions, either fully formed or as, you know, as a mercenary unit or something you could add on to this. They, They will have kind of get you by rules for everything at launch. So the rules will be there but they won't be so fully formed for the factions not covered in this kind of two-parter. 
We then come to, uh, again, in the uh, 2225, we find the first kind of mass crusade against the kingdom of the dead. So a force of cavalry knights from the kind of Templar-style knights of the blazing sun crusade against the Nehekaran city of Numas and kind of ransack the city and make off with a load of uh, with a load of goods in the same decade Alariel who is the queen of wood elves senses that Morgur who is the you know the spirit the beastman spirit of uh, mutation has returned again to the world and so she sends champions out to kind of kill it basically because he is I think a larger enemy to the wood elves than to humanity in general. We have a cheeky little side note here, just to kind of give you an idea of the tongue-in-cheek humor that is involved in Warhammer. There's a an artist, Italian artist called Grotio, who paints two thousand naked nymphs on the ceiling of his kind of lord's veranda instead of a battlefield scene extolling the virtues of his master, that artist is then exiled to an island referred to as Nonuki as punishment. Nonuki for you. <laughs> this is the level of sense of humor we're dealing with. And uh, not only in Warhammer, but also this uh, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> must have uh, must have taken him a while to have painted that, at which point did he go, this ain't the battle scene. I yeah, yeah, you. yeah. These naked nymphs over here—is that just the the sketch for you know my my cavalry? Is that are you are you changing them soon? Like this is a, this, this is, is your just, template, yeah, right? Yeah. This is phase one, right? <laughs> 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 Moving on, we have more kind of battles with demons, which I'm hoping we'll see as part of the Warriors of Chaos, either as a summoned thing or you know an ally, and. They attack a village called Lackenbad. And here we see the wood elves come to the humans' defense. So rangers of the Wildwood, uh, which is an area within Athalorn, uh, led by uh, Nestra and Aaron, who are twin wood elf warriors. And both of them... Uh, well, they were originally... Uh, sculpted separately but ultimately in a later version or a later edition of 40k both elf s's she elves both of them were sculpted onto the back of a wood elf dragon and so you had uh, you know a dragon with two female wood elf warriors mounted on the back of it just standing like on it, it which i thought was weird you just <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> not even looking the right way yeah, just, <laughs> just looking at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why are we on this dragon? <laughs> just on their phones. <laughs> and then w- within a decade of this battle, uh, when they wipe out the, the Chaos Demons, within a decade of that battle, Morgur is brought to heal at the Battle of Arden and is killed for the fifth time. He's more pernicious and more resilient than Nagash. Uh, well, insofar as he's able, I think he's able to be reborn faster. So halfway through the year, or halfway through the century, we start to see a rise of attacks by beastmen. Now, is this because 
the wood elves killed their kind of spiritual leader? Maybe, maybe not. Who's to say? And ultimately, these beastmen forces are brought to heel by a combined force of wood elf and high elf. Now, as we discussed last episode, while the wood elves are based in the old world, the high elves technically are not. They have their own kingdom of Ulthuin, but they do have a series of outposts along the uh, coastline of Britonia and Estalia. Uh, and it's from there that the High Elves are able to project their power into uh, the Old World. We see in, in the late 2260s and into the early 2270s, forces of chaos are able to get down into uh, Camry, usually through kind of uh, naval assault. We start seeing a lot of treasure being stolen from the Tomb Kings by the various factions within the old world. And this is really an important point that the the Cambrians don't really want to go outside of their kingdom. I mean, they'll nibble at the edges to gain more land, uh, you know, I was going to say peacefully, but, you know, at the end of a spear. When they're forced to travel, you know, huge distances, it's to reclaim treasure that was stolen from them. So they're very much a, a punitive force in terms of punishment and recapture. They're not really trying to get any land or treasure or anything from their enemies other than that which was stolen from them. And that's a kind of key point to keep in mind with the uh, the Cambrians. And is that, again, to do with the fact that the curse was kind of on the country as a whole? That it's made them real kind of home, home bods? Uh, Yeah, there's nothing tying them particularly to the sands of Nehekara other than familiarity. Right. They could ostensibly go and set up outposts. There's no magical reason that once they were turned into these skeletal forces that they have to stay in the lands where they're from. It's Mm. not like the old kind of vampire trope of, you know, you have to sleep on the dirt of your homeland every night. Uh, or mm. every day, depending on. But we um, choose to. But we choose to. I mean, we'll we'll mm. skirt over the fact that Chris still hasn't forgiven Games Workshop for making vampires have power naps in the day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was not happy. I never will. He was not happy when he found <laughs> that out. Um, so we're now getting into around the twenty two seventies, which is when the kind of present day of the old world is set, and there's really two kind of big events of that time. Uh, the first is the Ever Queen on the island of Ulthuin, the High Elf home, is poisoned uh, by Urian <gasps> Poison Gasp. Blade. Now, you'll recall, Ben and Chris, but also listeners, if you want to go and listen to the High Elf episodes, that precipitates a huge battle and tumultuous consequences for Ulthuin on or around the same time as the great kind of war against chaos, which happens in 2301. We're less than 30 years from that, but that's one of the aspects that starts that inevitable fall and the rise of chaos within the the world in general. As part of that, Malekith, who is the king of the Dark Elves, binds a very important demon, Nakari, who is a keeper of secrets, a greater demon of Sunesh, binds Nakari to uh, his service. And this will have hilarious consequences for (laughs) the High Elf race as we move into the 2300s. 
The other big event really then is what's referred to as the War of Sand and Snow. And this is where a chaos raider, referred to as Valgar the Butcher, descends upon the city of Camry and the deserts around Camry and tries its best to get as much gold together. But unfortunately the for them, the forces of Camry have learned that their borders are not perhaps as secure as they would want them to be. And so suddenly regiments of armoured skeletons appear from the sands and Setra the Imperishable himself uh, ambushes Parishes. the Chaos Army. <laughs> oh no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ambushes the Chaos Army uh, and causes them to rout. But unfortunately... There are a, a, a few dozen marauders or, or chaos warriors make it back to Norska and they are rich beyond the kind of dreams of avarice. They get so much treasure from Camry that they are able to effectively write their own ticket for the rest of their lives. They don't know what to do with it. They finally splurge on the Lego Death Star that they always wanted. Which oh, is really, absolutely. It's just, it's just kind of outside of the the kind of reasonable pricing isn't it you just you want it but you <laughs> don't know if i can justify 400 pounds <laughs> but you don't really want um, <laughs> so that unfortunately then within within a decade setra organizes an enormous kind of naval force which sails up towards norska and absolutely decimates the uh, tribes that were involved in the battle again in an effort to reclaim the treasure that was stolen. And then really we get into the kind of the final decades of the 2200s. We see that Orion, who is the king, the husband of Ariel in Athaloran, he descends into madness. And so instead of being this kind of noble hunter or noble embodiment of an like an elven hunter, the hunter god Kurnos, he becomes cruel and wanton and causes his court to become cruel and wanton. And the concern is is that this is because there's some corruption within the Athaloran that has caused them to go uh, bonkers. And they're right, right? And I mean, they're right, but it's also a mystery to be unraveled uh, within the ah, game yes, itself. Yes, 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 yes. Ah, yes. Okay. We close out the 2200s with the curse of Muslon. 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 The curse of Musli. The curse of Muslon, <laughs> which is where Duke Maldred and his wife Malfleur of Bretonia get involved in a thing called the Affair of the False Grail. Now, we touched on it last episode that to be able to become the kind of highest ranks within Bretonian nobility, you have to go on a grail quest and find the grail. What oh, yeah. he does is he goes on a grail quest and with his wife invents a false grail. And Shut up. This is, That's they are confronted by the kind of uh, the high priestess of the Lady of the Lake. Uh, who's, <laughs> who's going like this is clearly paper mache like yeah. what are you doing like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> caught you um, and instead of owning up the imprisoner uh, and uh, denounce <laughs> they denounce the king and attempt to seize total power within Bretonia 
Ultimately, they are deposed by the king, Gaston de Beauguest, who leads an army to Mousselon and lays siege to the city. Unfortunately, within a year, uh, Malfleur, who is turns out to be a bit of an old magic user, the wife of uh, Maldred of Mousselon, accidentally opens a chaos rift uh, within Mousselon and the forces of Nurgle take over uh, and infest <laughs> wow. the city and turn it into a kind of feculent, swampy, evil city. And, and while they're able, while the forces of Bretonia are able to kind of conquer and wipe out these demonic forces, the infection still persists within Muslon up until the end times. Um, wow. And so you have, uh, you know, the various kingdoms around the old world all appear to have picked a fight with all of the other kingdoms around the old world. And so that's really a kind of potted history of that century that the game is set in. The big event which happens in 2301 is not only Malekith, the king of the Dark Elves, who declares, you know, an age of vengeance against the High Elves and thus invades Ulthuin again and almost disrupts the Chaos Vortex. This is paired with the Great War Against Chaos by the denizens of the Old World, where they come very close to uh, destruction at the hands of one of the greatest Chaos forces, Chaos armies, the world has ever seen, which is uh, stopped only with the assistance of the Dwarves, which ultimately unites both the Dwarves and the Empire, but... The empire goes from having three emperors contesting the throne to a single emperor. And that's really where the modern empire then is born in the aftermath of the Great War Against Chaos. Oh, cool. So does that actually happen within the the new setting time range then? What year was that? Uh, no, it happens 30 years after. Uh, so 30 years if, after. If, so, yes, yeah, so if we accept that it's 2276 is the date that's been bandied around, right. it's within the 2302 to 2306 range that the Great War of Chaos is fought. So so the human factions are still warring internally? Yes, right, absolutely. Okay. Is yeah. that purposeful so that you know it makes more sense that people can field different human forces against each other yes i think they've chosen that time frame in kind of warhammer history deliberately but that was an element of warhammer history that existed before right. the old world the game gotcha. yeah, yeah, they've yeah, just yeah, chosen yeah. it well i think yeah so we we see a lot of uh a lot of battles a lot of crusades a lot of vengeance wars by the tomb kings the wood elves kind of getting out there again from their isolationist kingdom Britonia cleaning itself of uh, the forces of evil, the Empire kind of regaining strength and fighting the good fight against various enemies, the orcs and goblins being orcs and goblins, being all invady and uh, fighty, and the slow and steady rise of the forces of chaos in all areas as you know we head towards the pinnacle of the chaos invasion as... Uh, you know, all the, the while, of... the humble halflings just eating pies, drinking beer, <laughs> yeah. and growing pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the moot, 
I mean, I'll be gutted if we don't see halflings in the Empire Army book. Because you used to be able to field them and then they kind of quietly put them away. Yeah. In, you know in later editions but in in fourth edition you could feel you know you could have halfling heroes and field an army of halflings that'd be pretty boss that's yeah a full army would be yeah. mental so that is our two-part expose kind of crash course in the setting and factions for warhammer the old world uh, at release We'd love to hear what people think, and I particularly would like to hear what you two think right now. Um, <laughs> my... Well, what are you thinking? Oh, man, what am I not thinking? So, again, uh, as highlighted by Darren, this is basically the bit, the time, period of time, just before the end times and is that because that period of time hasn't actually been very well fleshed out? There are holes in it which can be filled law-wise. It's just before the Great War Against Chaos. The End Times is another 250 sure. years after that. But I, I think, if I understand where your question is going, yes, there are huge gaps in the lore in this state. I mean, the dwarves, I think in my research, the dwarves are only mentioned once. Wow. Of course, they're going to have numerous battles and, cool. uh, and what have you happen in that time. So we're, I, what I'm hoping we'll see is all the existing lore up to date is retained up to the mm. 2200s. And then that century is expanded upon in more detail. Because I think it will not only give you know people who love a specific faction more depth in, in playing, and understanding the lore of the thing, but it gives a greater opportunity for things like role-playing games. You know, yes, uh, warmer fantasy yeah, role-playing yeah, yeah. in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotcha. really cool. Gotcha. Yeah. So when they release the armies, will it be like the same way that they do now? They'll release, I don't know what they'll call them, a, not a codex or a battle tool. An army book. Yeah. Is it a, an army book was the original? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. they'll release army books, and in those army books, will they... Will they build upon the existing lore from the original franchise or setting when it was called Fantasy Battle? Yes, that will be the vehicle within which all of those details are expanded on. Yeah. And that will include not only the kind of background history, color schemes and painting guide, but it will also include the army list. So what I'm hoping we'll see is you'll only need to buy one book per faction. <laughs> you'll only need one book times 22. <laughs> but i think at launch the current rumors and when this is released the what i'm about to say may be uh, disproved is that there will be a bretonian army set a tomb king's army set and that's really it i've not heard any talk about a combined battle box although you know traditionally that's how they've done it and i'm hoping that will still be there but people may have to choose between Britonia and Camry. That said, they've talked about releasing army lists, like get you by army lists, for everything that existed in 8th edition in 2015. So one assumes there'll be one or two books that'll cover that, and I'm sure they're going to sell the rulebook by itself as well. So people who have, for instance, a Dark Elf army will need to buy the rulebook and whatever book contains the dark elves 
army lists for that for the game at launch so we went to warhammer fest uh earlier this year and we can only assume the warhammer fest 2024 will be going ahead uh roughly the same time of year yeah do you think the aim obviously half of that venue space we're in was was competition tables wasn't it it was people playing you know yeah. various games that the games workshop offer um yeah. i don't actually remember seeing a huge amount of age of sigmar there but i'm assuming there was age of sigmar there there was there, there, was, there yeah. was yeah so do you think that the the old world will be a, a significant part of that competition space then next year i'd be very surprised if it wasn't right okay that's cool that's real cool. But I think I think what they've what they're trying to pitch it as is that you know you have forty k and you have Horus Heresy and Horus Heresy has very dedicated fans, but it's a smaller player base than forty k. So at conventions, unless it's specific to Horus Heresy, you have uh, a larger portion assigned for 40k than you do for horus heresy i think you'll find that similar kind of scale right okay. not a relationship but a scale yeah. for age of sigmar and warhammer gotcha. fantasy yeah, yeah yeah that makes sense right kral so you've got five mm. good factions and the four bad factions which one of each do you want to see in a battle together uh from each side yeah. going toe to toe yeah one bad, one good. One oh, bad. definitely the orcs Excellent. versus your stupid elves, man. <laughs> is that just because I like <laughs> no, them? Is that, is that the sole reason you want to see them pounded? Uh, not because you like them. It, it, it's I just I've just never got. I just don't like the elves, and I never have like their <laughs> in any IP. I just I just have this problem with the elves. It just seems so pretentious. Like basically everything the orcs do not stand for. <laughs> That's why I don't like the elves. I'm an orc fan. <laughs> yeah. It's no surprise, right? It's, it's true. It's <laughs> true. And you never stop telling us about them. Dar, which two factions? Um, I mean, take it as read that I'm going to collect Tomb Kings because they're the dead. I don't know if I'll collect a big army, but I might get a, a cheeky force together. <sighs> I'd like to see the, a battle between the Beastmen and the Wood Elves. Nice. Because there's yeah. quite a good story in there yeah, with yeah. Morgor and the corruption of uh, elements of Athelor, and I think that's quite a good thematic battle. I'd love to see that. Yeah, nice. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ben. just completely because I'm, I'm assuming that you can field good factions against you know in the way that we talked about uh, the yeah of, against. But you could other, do that yeah, with yeah, bad yeah. as well, couldn't you? Yeah, of course yeah. you can. Go okay. Well, I want to see Warriors of Chaos and Beastmen fight each other because they seem pretty matched on the kind of strength. And you know, just yeah. raw power. But I also want to see uh, the Empire beat the crap out of those Arthurian legends ripoffs. <laughs> Son of a bitch! <laughs> I'm I'm really intrigued. All this talk about Bretonia and the Bretonian bashing from certainly from Darren's side, anyway. I'm eager to kind of learn more about them and and the differences. What separate them between them and the Imperial uh, factions? I do get the feeling, Kral, that your desires in this area are really characterized by what Darren and I like or dislike. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, 100%. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I am just following your guys' lead. I am the lead ignoramus here, oh, do you know okay. what I mean? So I'm just feeding <laughs> off your energies, you know? <laughs> right, we have got to wrap up. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close this out? 
<laughs> Your silence speaks volumes. No. <laughs> what? All right, that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening. Details and imagery for the topics we've discussed in this podcast can be found in the description, as well as a link to our main show, Laying Down the Lore of the Old World, if you want to dive a little deeper into the lore for this setting. You can also find info and links to all our shows on our website at layingdownthelore.com. We hope you've enjoyed this ramble through the old world lore and hope you can join us again on one of our other shows. Until then, goodbye. See you later, everybody. Bye. Bye.